For Lisa and Dave Medill, December 1st, 2014, marked the beginning of a never-ending nightmare. Their 25-year-old daughter was missing. Shannon, who was the youngest of their four children, had failed to show up for a planned outing with her older brother, Brett, which was unusual, but not completely out of character for her. But when no one from the close-knit family heard from Shannon in over 24 hours, they became concerned. Text messages from her parents and siblings went unanswered. Calls made to her cell phone went straight to her voicemail. Trying not to assume the worst, Shannon's family came up with various scenarios for why she had missed the night out with her brother and why she wasn't answering the phone. It wasn't until the family was finally able to get in touch with Shannon's estranged husband, Josh Burgess, that they knew it was time to file a missing persons report. Shannon, who was living with Josh at the time, wasn't home. Josh indicated he hadn't seen Shannon in a few days, but told them that her car was parked in the driveway and her wallet and phone were still at the house. Immediately, all of the possible scenarios of where Shannon might be didn't appear so possible anymore. Join me now as we take a look into the sudden disappearance of Shannon Medill Burgess, a surprise baby for the Medill family who grew into a vibrant, aspiring actress with a love for animals, music, and anything that could make her laugh. You'll hear what it was like as a child growing up in the Medill household and how the close-knit, loving family dealt with emotional and devastating turmoil of having an integral part of their family missing. To understand the insurmountable impact Shannon's disappearance had on the Medill family, you first really need to gain an appreciation for the incredibly close and loving family that they were and are today. Shannon's parents, Dave and Lisa, first met in February 1977 at an accounting firm in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Dave was working towards becoming a chartered accountant, while Lisa, was doing administration and secretarial work. It didn't take long before Dave asked Lisa out on a date for ice cream, and from there, their relationship blossomed. Two years later, in June of 79, the couple decided to tie the knot and began building a life together. In the fall of 79, Dave was sent out by his office to Calgary, Alberta for a few weeks. While he was there, it's safe to say that Calgary had left an impression on him. The economy was booming, and firms had all kinds of openings, not to mention the added allure of the beautiful Alberta landscape. 
the Rocky Mountains, over 600 lakes, world-class skiing, and you can't forget what it's probably most well-known for, the Calgary Stampede. This is the Calgary Stampede. Touted as the greatest outdoor show on earth, the Stampede is a 10-day, multi-million dollar rodeo, agricultural exhibition, and western party that takes over the city of Calgary every July. In December of 1979, they decided to make the big move out west to start their new adventure. Three years later, their first son, Tyler, was born. In fairly short order, only a year and a half later, they welcomed their first daughter, Erin, in 1984, and their second son, Brett, a year and a half later, in 1985. As the youngsters got a bit older, Dave and Lisa discussed whether or not they should try to have any more. But Lisa, who was at home with the kids, was just beginning to feel comfortable managing the three they had. Ultimately, they decided not to. But deep down, Dave felt as though their family wasn't complete. I don't know. I always felt that, uh, that someone was missing. And... Uh, it was kind of a surprise when uh, Shannon came along. Lisa describes the unexpected surprise of baby number four. She was an unexpected baby, a surprise bonus baby. We didn't think we were having any more after the first three. And it was uh, a difficult pregnancy. She almost didn't make it. And so we just felt totally blessed to have her in our lives. Shannon Heather Medill was born a month premature on Thursday, July 6, 1989. Despite being born early, Shannon was seven and a half pounds and was already making a name for herself as the biggest baby in the neonatal intensive care unit. She was born with red hair and the anesthesiologist said, oh, you're going to have trouble with this one. She's going to be spirited. But as a baby, Shannon's spirited personality had yet to emerge. Her parents remember her being remarkably easygoing. She was very, you know, pleasant. She didn't have moods. She was very easygoing. She was just this happy-go-lucky little baby. She never cried. I think she was about six months old before we actually heard her wail for the first time. She was tiny. I think she was 18 pounds at a year. So she was just this little teeny tiny thing walking around. For many, many years, we didn't like we didn't think she was ever going to reach five feet. Uh, she did sort of wind up doing a, a growth spurt in her late teens. She was the shortest one of all the kids. Like any family, the Medill children took some time to adjust to the new addition to the family. Tyler was seven years older and... Erin was five and a half exactly on the day she was born, and Brett was four. I don't think Brett liked giving up his spot as the baby of the family, but he managed to adjust to it. Shannon and Tyler had a very special bond when they were young. He was, like I said, seven years older, but he really enjoyed her. He loved holding her as a baby and playing with her. I do remember the excitement. Oh, there's going to be another kid family. And I remember being totally in love with her. Shannon's older sister, Erin, had always hoped for a baby sister. 
And here she was, a dream come true. I was always so jealous of the fact that my brothers each had a brother. And I always wanted a sister, always wanted a sister. My parents told me that they were done, they weren't going to have any more kids. And then the next thing I know, now I have a little sister. And I was so thrilled to have a little sister of my own. It didn't take long for Erin to realize that being a big sister wasn't all what it was cracked up to be. When Shannon was around two, she decided that having a little sister that got into all her things wasn't as lovely as she thought it might be. And then she started walking and talking and taking my stuff. It became a lot less endearing then. It was almost like having this miniature shadow that followed me around. She wanted to do everything I did. She wanted to play with everything I played with. And we shared a room, so it was, you know, typical sibling stuff where you fight over everything, but you love each other fiercely. As Shannon grew older she began to live up to her fiery red hair and the prediction the anesthesiologist had made. She spoke early, so she always had something to say. Very precocious. Oh my gosh, she's always been a goofball. Luckily, she was never incredibly shy. She was a really happy little kid, just always really interested in every bug, every leaf, every blade of grass, every snowflake. She had lots of friends, but I can't say that she had one really close friend, but she had lots and lots of friends. I thought this was really funny, actually. She would call everybody her best friend. She just assumed that everybody liked her, and for the most part, she was correct. She was not inhibited at all. She was very outgoing, and everything was larger than life with her. So if she was happy, she was really happy. If she was sad, she was really sad. But most of the time, she just found life funny. She added a lot of life to our household. Shannon's father, Dave, became quite impressed on how his daughter's little mind worked at such a young age. The way her mind worked at times was amazing. She was in a play, I think it was when she was in kindergarten, and she volunteered to be one of the lesser parts. And then, but then it came out that she was really hoping that the person that got the, the most important part would like what Shannon was doing so much that she would want to switch roles so that Shannon could be the. <laughs> it didn't play out that way, but I did find it kind of amazing that she had this sort of all worked out in her mind just how this would play out. The Medill family had no shortage of stories when it came to ways Shannon kept them all entertained. She did some very strange things with the animals, too. She At one point, when she was about three or four, maybe, she decided that the cat and the dog were not getting along as well as they should. So she buttered each of them so that they would lick it off of each other (laughs) and so that they would be friends. It was very strange. Now, the, the dog wasn't too bad. He was a beagle, so he was a pretty easy bath. But the cat was a Persian. And after the third bath, she still reeked of butter. It was pretty bad. Tyler, Shannon's older brother, remembers a very amusing story about Shannon regarding some crab legs. I remember one time we went to, I think it was a buffet. And they were serving crab, and she'd snuck some of them home. She liked them so much that she'd snuck them home somehow, and nobody noticed, and kept them in jars of water in her dresser. And 
I remember we found out and we're like, Shannon, what are you doing? And she she was convinced that she was keeping them safe and she was gonna grow some some crab. And by this time, by the time we'd found it, it like they had been in there a while, so they were rotting because she just put them in jars of water. So it was there was no preservation. So it was these like festering crab legs in water. <laughs> I mean, I was probably eight or or nine at the time. So, so I thought it was hilarious. At an early age, Aaron remembers Shannon demonstrating her gift of persuasion and creative thinking after being grounded. She had this silly game and it was kind of like furry mixed with some biology concept to it. And she wrote this ridiculous article to my parents about how she shouldn't be grounded because what was actually happening by playing this game is she was learning biology because you had made the two different little creatures create a baby creature. And she was learning about loss because once a creature died, they wouldn't come back. And it was very good and well-written to explain why she should be allowed to play her video games even though she's grounded. When it came to fashion... She had some really interesting style choices. She had very definite opinions of what she would wear as a young child. She actually wore a bathing suit until she was in about grade two, always under her clothes to school, but she was always in a bathing suit or her Pocahontas dress. That was one of those things that we used to have to sneak it out of her room at night and wash it and have it ready for her in the morning. The Medill household was not only a home for a family of six, but it also housed a small animal kingdom. Lisa confessed that she was a huge softie when it came to abandoned animals in the neighborhood. I think we were dumping ground for stray animals for a while there. We have a small house. It was quite crowded. We had dogs and cats and hamsters and gerbils and fish and lizards and frogs and a hedgehog, chinchillas, a rabbit. And I think it was great for the kids. They learned to respect animals and treat them properly. And they were great companions. When somebody was sad, there was always a dog or a cat to hug. Shannon was really good with the animals. She, she had a lot of compassion anyway, but I think it really helped her develop her love of life and, and living things. Lisa can remember a very specific moment in time where as a young girl, Shannon demonstrated how deeply compassionate she was. We went to see a double feature of Homeward Bound, the movie with the two dogs and the cat that are finding their way home. And she would have been about four, I think, at the time. And as soon as the dogs and cat got left behind at the house, she started crying. And I'm not talking like just tears. I'm talking sobbing in this movie. And she basically cried the whole way through. And I kept saying to her, do you want to leave? Do you want to leave the movie? No, no, no. But you're not enjoying it. Yes, I like this movie. I want to stay. I want to watch it. And she just cried and cried and cried. And then at the very end, when the one dog ends up coming home that you think is lost or died or something, she started just sobbing all over again. And I said, no, it's happy. It's good. He came home. And she said, no, I'm crying because I'm so happy now. And that was basically her. She just had emotions for everything. She was very emotional and, and really wore her heart on her sleeve. She had this real compassion for everything and this real interest in, in life. And just, like I said, wore her heart on her sleeve. The Medill household was a very lively place to grow up. 
Not only did the various animals make it every child's dream home, all of Lisa and Dave's children were performers and artistically inclined in some shape or form. Shannon, Aaron, and Brett all played musical instruments. Shannon and Tyler both sang. Shannon, Aaron, and Tyler were all involved in acting. And to top it all off, all four children were never shy on words, meaning there was always a flurry of conversation around the Medill dinner table. Dinner time was always a lot of fun. I actually felt like a traffic cop a lot of times because I would hold my hand up to stop one from talking and then, you know, motion for another one to go ahead. <laughs> we did, I guess there's a name for it now, good, bad, and kind. I just did it with the kids when they were younger. You say something good that happened at school, something bad that happened at school, and how you were kind that day. A lot of times they had to think about the kind. <laughs> but I think it really also gave me an insight as to who they were and what they decided was kind. It was more of a way to engage them. While speaking to the Medills, it was apparent what an incredibly loving and nurturing family they were. When any of their children expressed an interest or talent for something, Lisa and Dave didn't hesitate to do what they could to encourage and support them. At a young age, Shannon began taking piano lessons, then also eventually started playing the French horn, trombone, and baritone. When Shannon was going into grade five, Dave and Lisa decided to move her to a performing arts school called Milton Williams Creative Arts Center. She really, really started to flourish when she went to the art school. She was not what I would call a scholastic type child. She was smart and she could do the work, but she had a learning disability. And so that held her back. And she just blossomed when she went to the art school and she could express herself through drawing or music or plays. That's when she started writing short little monologues about things. So we put her into um, one of the youth singers here in Calgary. And she spent a year with them. They did a number of performances, and then she moved into marching band after that. The marching band Shannon was a part of was actually the show band for the Calgary Stampede. And now we give you the Calgary Stampede Show Band! Shannon, along with her siblings, Aaron and Brett, we're all a part of it. Aaron explained to us just how much of a commitment it was for all of them. So it's a marching band and it travels the world. And I believe she went to Korea in high school with the one marching band. And uh, they've done like the Rose Bowl parade and a lot of all over North America, but we also would travel the world to do marching band competitions. So she would do parades and drills and all that kind of stuff. And it was one night a week and one week in a month. And then during the summertime, it basically took up all of July. But even while Shannon was rehearsing and performing with the marching band, her true passion seemed to emerge. Her mom recalls that in between breaks, Shannon would keep all the other musicians entertained with her goofy side. Because Shannon had blossomed so much during her time at the Performing Arts Elementary School, her parents made sure that for high school, she was enrolled in a performing arts school again, Central Memorial High School. She did music 
in high school, but she actually went into the drama side. She had a fantastic drama teacher, and she did a lot of plays, a number of one-person shows. There's one that she did that's called The Queen that was just amazing. And she did it for a uh, a drama festival. It's quite dramatic. It goes on for about 10 minutes and she does this phenomenal job for it. Would I do it again? Well, I suppose what really counts is that I've managed to get on top and stay there. And isn't that what we're told to aspire to? Isn't that how fairy tales are supposed to end? That's when Shannon's desire to perform on stage really started to develop. She joined several improv groups, including Yuck Yucks, which is when she also started creating a repertoire of comedic material. She did stand-up. She wasn't a one-liner type stand-up. She was more of the storytelling. So she would tell a bunch of stories and then weave them all in together at the end. You could tell when you were with her, when situations were happening, she, you could tell that she was tucking them away to put them into a comedy bit later on. Whether they were good things or bad things, it didn't seem to matter. They, you could just see the little brain working, the eyes moving and saying, okay, that one's going into my bank. I'm going to pull that one out later. And you did end up hearing some of them in her stand-up. So. Shannon just absolutely loved to perform. She loved to be on stage, and a microphone and a spotlight became her best friends. Despite her passion for acting, Shannon decided to apply to Mount Royal University to pursue a degree in something that had the potential for a more reliable income, psychology. It was something she was legitimately interested in. However, halfway through her education, she knew deep down it ultimately wouldn't be a career path she would enjoy. After quitting school, Shannon got a job working for a construction company as a receptionist, and moved in with her sister Erin in 2010. For the most part, you could say that Shannon had focused much of her adolescence on her education, her music, photography, and acting, and hadn't been particularly boy-crazy, but she did have a few relationships along the way. Oh, yeah, no, I remember some of the boyfriends. I really liked all of her boyfriends. She didn't, I don't remember her ever dating anybody that I didn't think was incredibly sweet and kind and had a good head on their shoulders. Nobody that I would have questioned why she was dating them. She didn't date a whole lot of different men. She had a few good ones that were generally around for a number of years. They were not quiet. I would not say her first boyfriend in high school, very outspoken. You knew exactly how he felt about things. Not shy, not quiet. She was definitely attracted to a certain physical profile. She was actually very nerdy, but she's the outgoing nerd, right? So she tended to date other typical nerdy guys. It wasn't until 2010, after Shannon had been living with her big sister for a few months, that her first real serious relationship began. Shannon was 20 years old when she met Joshua Burgess at a party through mutual friends. There was an instant connection, but he was seeing somebody else. And shortly thereafter, he broke up with that girl. He was planning on breaking up with her anyway, so they'd actually broken up. And that's when he contacted Shannon and asked if she would be interested in dating him. And she didn't really talk about him too much until he just sort of started coming over and hanging out. And the family's first impressions of Josh? Josh was generally quieter. He was incredibly quiet. 
he was very quiet. I definitely agree that he was quiet. And it wasn't only Shannon's family that had that initial feeling about him. We asked various people who were friends of Shannon's what they thought of him, and they didn't have much to say, just that there was nothing that really stood out about him. He seemed quiet. And that sounds like every news show, right? Like, oh, he was such a quiet young man. But he was. He's he's very soft-spoken. He's He's not super outgoing. He's quiet. Although Josh was quiet, he wasn't necessarily shy. Like when Josh held his own and he, you know, in conversations and that, I actually remember the one year when uh, Shannon and Aaron were uh, in Australia and New Zealand for Christmas and New Year's 2013, I believe, that Josh came over for Christmas by himself. And I remember thinking that he made a point of coming when she wasn't even around. Shannon's brother Tyler confessed that he took his role as big brother seriously when meeting his sister's love interests. I mean, I'll be honest, meeting him for the first time, I'm trying to size him up to say, like, you know, are you good enough? Aaron personally got along great with Josh, and despite his quiet demeanor, didn't seem to have any trouble talking to him. She found him to be funny, kind of sweet, and could tell he enjoyed spending time with her sister. He would always be sitting there with kind of a smirk on his face, as if he was almost enjoying watching Shannon be a total goofball. So I think he got a lot of pleasure out of seeing how silly she was and how lively she was. But he was sort of more happy to sit in the background and just watch the show. Shannon's mother, Lisa, always made a point of trying to get to know anyone her children chose to be in a significant relationship with. And Josh was no exception. I remember him coming over for dinner and I would ask him questions and she would answer for him. And I finally had to tell her to stop. And she said, oh, but I know the answer. And I say, yes, but I'm trying to engage him and get him to talk to me <laughs> so and make him feel comfortable too, hopefully. But um, that was the first time she'd ever answered for somebody. And, and later on, we talked about it and she was saying that she wanted him to make a really good impression. And she said, yeah, she's, I never do that. That's so weird that I'm doing that this time. She said, this one's really important to me. And so I've always felt that if my child fell in love with somebody, that there must be something good about them. So I should pay attention and try to get to know this person and try to have a good relationship with them as well. And so that's, you know, I did the same thing with him. I don't remember having any feelings of concern at all, which is odd to say now. Josh and Shannon's relationship went from zero to 60 in a very short period of time. Although Josh didn't officially move in to Shannon and Aaron's place, he started spending a substantial amount of time there, including overnights. Because Aaron was in a relationship of her own, she was spending a lot of her time at her boyfriend's, leaving the place free for Shannon and Josh to hang out. In Aaron's opinion, her sister seemed to be pretty comfortable around Josh and didn't pretend to be anything that she wasn't. From what Aaron could see, they argued like any other couple, and nothing really seemed to stick out to her. I can't think of anything where there was any concern outside of just 
two people who try to get along and try to spend a lot of time together are going to disagree. I mean, if they would fight, yeah, he would go back home. But nothing that was substantial, nothing that I even remotely thought would break up the relationship. So there was absolutely no red flags and nothing for me to be concerned about. Exactly two years after Shannon and Josh started dating, they were engaged in December of 2012. Three months later, they moved out on their own, taking over Josh's sister's townhome on the 1900 block of Spiller Road in Ramsey, Calgary. In the midst of Shannon's personal life taking off, she'd also began putting a serious effort into forging her way into a full-time acting career. She'd left her job working for the local construction company and sent a demo reel to an acting agent, Kelsey Forzani Mannix, owner of Calgary-based Details Talent. Although Kelsey had been in the midst of trimming down her client list, she said she found Shannon irresistible with her red hair, green eyes, and bubbly personality. She just loved Shannon and her look. According to Aaron, there was no job too small that Shannon wouldn't take. You know, I show up early to research your cases and I stay late to file your paperwork. I basically kick ass for you day and night because I believe you do good things. But I'm not doing this again. I'm only doing it because you and I both know this kid is innocent. You're lucky I'm amazing. She was willing to put in the time and hard work necessary to begin carving out a name for herself, which meant traveling for auditions to various parts of Alberta and other cities across Canada. Shannon made her way into small roles for several independent films, one which she played a photographer in a short film called Zombie Number no. 1. Shannon also invested money into buying a mic and setting up a makeshift recording studio in her home so she could record voiceovers for commercials and audiobooks. One of the audiobooks she recorded required her to come up with 20 different voices for the various characters of a book called One's Aspect to the Sun, written by Sherry D. Ramsey. Luda! Something was wrong. Ray was shouting. Then I felt it. The ship was shaking as if we were entering an atmosphere far too fast and at the wrong incline. What's wrong? The swing force is too much. I can't hold us to 180. You've got to. 20 seconds, Ray, Baden shouted. Just 20 seconds more. Tyke Books was so pleased with her voiceover work that they asked her to voice another audiobook for them and then also interviewed her during a live stream on YouTube. In the interview, Shannon shares a little bit about herself and how she practices her voices. I've been acting not for very long in the grand scheme of things. I really only started doing it professionally about a year and a half ago now. Um, and really got interested in the idea of doing voice work and voiceover work and, and that side of the industry. And that's sort of been my focus since I started. I started talking to my dog in children's voices every once in a while. And it's quite bad because I'll be walking down the street and walking my dog and I start making these weird voices just to practice. Oh man, it's not even eight in the morning. Why does it have to be so hot in here? And I'll turn around the corner and somebody will have heard me saying 
extremely weird phrases or whatever I'm auditioning for to my dog. With Shannon officially starting her career as an actor, her mother wondered how it would affect Shannon's relationship with Josh. I think it's difficult to be married to an actor, period. I think it's a difficult lifestyle. There's a whole other life that your partner is leading that doesn't involve you. I did ask him at one point, you know, I said, are you okay with this? Because she wasn't earning a lot of money because I don't think most actors do in the beginning, unless you're very, very lucky. She was spending a fair amount of time away from the home at that point. And so he said, oh yeah, no, this is fine. I'll support her in whatever she wants to do. Out of the blue, on May 1st, 2014, Shannon suddenly made a Facebook announcement that her and Josh had finally set a date to get married in three days' time, May 4th. Because of Shannon's quirky sense of humor, she found it amusing to choose a date that is in reference to a pun warmly shared by Star Wars fans. May the 4th be with you. Shannon decided that she wanted to get married and wanted it to happen fairly quietly but quickly. And I mean, it was a very small affair. The only people there at the wedding were uh, obviously the judge and Josh's mother and sister and Lisa and me. was there. After getting married, things seemed to be moving along pretty smoothly for the newlyweds. Shannon was regularly going for auditions, and from the outside looking in, they seemed happy. Until Lisa started getting more frequent phone calls from her daughter about her marriage. Both of my girls are sharers and tend to tell me things. Sometimes I don't want to hear them, but they tell me anyway. Um, Shannon would call me on a regular basis. I talked to her at least once a week. We texted all the time, but we usually had a phone call once a week. We didn't see each other more than every couple of weeks. But um, she would call and tell me when there, when things were not doing well. And when there'd been a fight, if there, especially if there'd been a fight, she would call me and let me know. How she, she just wanted to talk. She just wanted to spout. She didn't want me to solve it. She just wanted to tell me. So. I thought at first that it was just early marriage squabbling and then realized within a few weeks that it was a lot more serious than that, that there really were, there really were some critical issues that they needed to work out. You know, there's always two sides to every story, but the things that she was telling me, I, I was concerned, more than concerned. On October 26, 2014, Erin received a shocking phone call from her sister, Shannon, telling her that Josh had asked for a divorce. After only being married for six months, Shannon's family had a difficult time trying to make sense of it. It was astonishing to me. I mean, I know marriages, and, you know, you get ups and downs and that, but you don't usually have things sort of starting to fall down in that short order. Although Erin had been shocked by her sister's news, she couldn't say that she was overly surprised. Shannon was a very big personality. You know, you get married young before you really figure out who you are, and then you kind of grow into yourself and you realize you want something different. So I wasn't entirely surprised that they were getting divorced, only because I figured, okay, grew a little bit more, you figured out who you were, and this isn't the life that you were hoping for. 
But just as Shannon's family was coming to terms with the divorce announcement, the very next day, they heard that Josh had changed his mind and wanted to work things out. Nobody could really understand what was going on. About a week later, Aaron asked Shannon to go for dinner with her and offered her little sister a listening ear. I got a little bit more of the backstory of what was going on and uh, that she had been sick for a while. She was experiencing pain and it meant that it was affecting their relationship. What Aaron soon discovered was that her sister had been experiencing pain for some time, but hadn't known the cause. That month, she finally got a diagnosis and discovered she'd been suffering with symptoms caused by endometriosis. It's a disease that affects approximately 176 million women worldwide, and one that is unfortunately often misunderstood and ignored by the medical community and public alike, causing countless women to struggle in silence. We asked Wendy Weiner, who is a registered nurse, first assistant at the Center for Endometriosis Care, located in Atlanta, Georgia, to provide an explanation on the disease and how it can negatively impact a woman's quality of life. Endometriosis has been described a lot of different ways. As simplistically as possible, if you think of the interior lining of the uterus as endometrium, that's what you slough off every month when you have a period, the endometrium. But what happens with endometriosis is that you have the endometrium or endometrial implants, as in endometriosis, that is not just inside your uterus, but it can be found outside the uterus. It can be found on your fallopian tubes, your ovaries, on the pelvic sidewalls, at the uterosacral ligaments inside. In more extreme cases, it can be found on the bowel. It can even be found on the diaphragm and even in a smaller percent of patients, even in their lungs, you know, it can pretty much be found in most areas of the body. But most commonly, we see it in the pelvis or affecting the female pelvic organs. One of the early signs of potential endometriosis for a patient is if they have menstrual cramps that are so painful that it cannot be controlled by taking like Advil or, or Aleve or ibuprofen. However, in the more extensive cases, they will actually have pain all month long, not just with their period. There are people with endometriosis that have no symptoms. And for those women, they may never have any symptoms of it until, let's say, they're trying to get pregnant. And that may be their first clue. Wendy explained to us some of the complications that can arise when women don't have the support and understanding from their partners while dealing with this disease. Because a woman is having so much pain, what happens is, of course, if you have that much pain, it's going to be hard for you to be sexually active. If you are doubled over with pain, you could just imagine, like, who's going to want to even have anybody touch you, let alone have intercourse. So it's very hard in relationships because one of the things we try to do, especially if someone's in a relationship, we try to make sure that we educate the patient's significant other 
because otherwise it's going to be hard for them to understand what's going on and that they need to understand that this pain is not caused by them, but this is something that is real. It's very, very real. It's something that when we do surgery, we can see it. It's not just that they're feeling this. I mean, this is definitely real. 100% it's real. It's not in their head. It's not something that cannot be proven. Just like with any other disease of the body, if you have a physical ailment or a physical disease or if you have pain, your partner needs to understand that this is real. Then there's so many different issues that can arise as a result of this because if your significant other doesn't have compassion, empathy, feeling for what you're going through, then they're not going to be able to be supportive to you and then it interferes with the whole relationship. And then when you get to intimacy, it interferes with that. And obviously, there are ways that you can satisfy your partner without having to have intercourse. You know, it, you could just derive a lot just from holding hands and being and holding each other. But obviously, you know, a lot of people, that's not enough for them. Shannon explained to Aaron that she had found it painful to be intimate with Josh for most of their relationship, but was too embarrassed to tell him, so she hid it from him. Wendy, who has worked with countless couples through this very issue, explains various reasons why Shannon may have been afraid to tell him based on her experience counseling other women. In her mind, there were probably very good reasons she was afraid to do that. You know, if you just put yourself in her shoes, I'm sure she was very, very scared to probably tell him because then maybe, you know, he'd start looking at other women. Maybe he wouldn't find her attractive anymore. Maybe if he felt that if she wasn't able to satisfy him sexually, there was any concern that she they wouldn't be able to have children, all of those different things. I mean, you just think in a normal relationship without any of those issues, you know, you want to put your best foot forward. And if she doesn't want to, him to know that she doesn't feel well, that she's having pain, and especially if it's happening often, if he wants to have sex and she doesn't feel like it, you know, how many times can she say, I'm not feeling well? She's worried he's going to look elsewhere. He looks at other women and he sees that they can do all those things. When Shannon finally did decide to open up to Josh, and tell him about the pain she'd been experiencing. He didn't respond with the kind of support she'd been hoping for. He decided that if they couldn't be physically intimate and weren't going to have kids, he didn't understand why he would stay in a marriage. As we mentioned earlier, the day after Josh had asked for a divorce from Shannon, following her confession about the disease she'd been struggling with, he had a change of heart the next day and said he wanted to try to work things out. One of the ways he saw this happening was for Shannon to follow the treatment plan set up by her physician. Shannon had been prescribed medication that didn't treat the endometriosis, but only masked some of her symptoms. Unfortunately, it also had some terrible side effects, one of which included causing Shannon to become forgetful, which impacted her ability to remember lines. Shannon confided in her sister Erin that Josh was upset for her refusing to take the medication 
and felt that it demonstrated she really didn't care enough to help fix the intimate side of their relationship. But Wendy explains just how dangerous some of these side effects are. There are some medications out there that promise all kinds of things. And unfortunately, they don't actually treat the endometriosis. They don't get rid of the endometriosis. And the side effects are horrible. And some of the side effects are not reversible, even when you go off the medication. Some of the side effects are so horrible that it can throw a woman into postmenopause. It can make a person depressed. It can make them suicidal. There's all kinds of terrible things that can come out of it. Believe me, if there was a medication or a pill that we could give our patients that would treat the endometriosis that will get, would get rid of it and would be safe for our patients to take without negative side effects, of course, we would be happy to prescribe that. But the only way to effectively treat endometriosis is to have minimally invasive surgery, which is laparoscopy. There is no pill that's going to get rid of it. What Erin also discovered from her sister was that one of the ways Shannon tried to manage the difficulties of being intimate with Josh was by suggesting they open up their marriage. Josh then established a profile on a dating site, stating he was looking for new friends, short-term dating, and said he was mostly non-monogamous. It also stated that he was looking for women between the ages of 18 and 45. After Josh had come back to Shannon, suggesting he wanted to try to make things work, Shannon requested that they close off the marriage again so they could take the time and focus needed to fix some of the issues they were having in their relationship. And Josh agreed. However, Shannon soon discovered that he hadn't honored that promise. He continued to see a woman he had met while lying to Shannon saying that the relationship was over. Inevitably, she would find evidence that proved otherwise. Erin started to have doubts that her sister's relationship was going to last. They would try to make it work, and it just kept on blowing up again. Like, they would have the same fights, they would have the same disagreements, and you could tell that it wasn't going to last, it wasn't going to work out. A lot of the issues were very juvenile thinking as opposed to thinking about like what do you want from a partner because there's so much more to a partner than just what happens in the bedroom there's somebody you can share your life with somebody you can watch sunsets together go on trips together a great companion a perfect friend and i think even though he had a great relationship with shannon as far as a lot of those aspects go he was very short-sighted in the well if one thing isn't working then none of it can work it was just a very childish and juvenile way of looking at things they loved each other, but they wanted very different things at that point in time, and it just was not going to go forward. A few weeks after Josh had asked to get a divorce the first time with Shannon, he insisted a second time that they needed to get a divorce. And then I got a phone call from Shannon on the 14th of November. She was indicating that now they were going to go ahead and split up. She was quite upset about it. Shannon hoped they could still somehow make things work. But Josh had made it clear that he wanted her to move out. 
she really did not want to. She really cared about him and really wanted to try and make this marriage work and was kind of willing to do whatever it took to get that to happen. Lisa felt bad for her daughter because she knew getting a divorce ultimately wasn't what Shannon wanted. But I thought that if we're at this point and it's being talked about, it's the the divorce word is being thrown around, that it's probably in her best interest in the long run. Even though it's going to be really hard at the beginning, she will adapt and and she's she was a strong person and I know it was heartbreaking for her and so of course that broke my heart because you know mums always take that personally right when your child is hurt you hurt too being the supportive parents that David and Lisa were they offered for Shannon to move back in with them while she got things sorted out and she was not keen to do that which uh... I could understand that, you know, she sort of would look at that as sort of being a step back. She assured me she did not need to move back home, that she was moving. She had a part in a TV show in Edmonton, and she was getting ready to move to Edmonton for six months and do a trial separation. She was pretty sure that that was going to be it, but uh, that was that was in the plan. It was She had accepted that at that point, that the marriage was probably over. And she was really heartbroken about it. Neither Dave nor Lisa had any concerns about Shannon's physical safety while she continued to live with Josh. They also didn't believe she had any either, or she wouldn't have stayed. On Saturday, November 22nd, Shannon drove to Edmonton for an audition for a TV show and was excited to have been asked for a callback on the following Wednesday. She also had another audition planned for that week in Edmonton, for the Friday morning. Shannon's mom and Brett's wife Lindsay planned to make their annual Black Friday shopping trip to Great Falls, Montana that weekend, and had offered for Shannon to tag along, but because of her upcoming audition, wasn't able to. On Sunday, November 30th, Lisa was surprised to hear from her youngest son, Brett, that Shannon had failed to show up to an outing he had planned with her. Brett had tickets to Stage West for the Sunday night. And so he was going to take Shannon as his date that night. Just thought it was a really nice thing to do for his baby sister. And she didn't show up. Brett messaged both Lisa and his wife, Lindsay, stating he was concerned that Shannon hadn't shown up to Stage West, and he hadn't heard from her. Brett also called his father to see if he'd heard from her. Shannon was a wonderful person, but she could be a little flighty at times. It's not like there was no history of her ever sort of not making it to an appointment. So the initial feeling was, well, here we go again. I mean, what had gone on that she just sort of stood up her brother? And uh, I sent her a text message right at that point, you know, saying, where are you? You're supposed to be with Brett. And a little later on, I phoned her and it just went straight to her voicemail, uh, which seemed kind of odd, but not impossible. She had the world's worst cell phone plan 
so it was not unusual not to hear from her right away. She was coming home from Edmonton that afternoon and was going to meet him at Stage West. And so we thought, well, maybe something happened and she got delayed or you know, the roads were bad. So she stayed in Edmonton overnight and just didn't bother to tell him. I called her several times again on the Monday morning, the 1st of December, and she wasn't answering. So I called Aaron and said, look, this is what's happened. It's very possible that she knows I'm upset and that she just doesn't want me to talk to me right now. Can you get a hold of her and make sure she's okay? Sometimes when Shannon would get overwhelmed, she would sleep. And that was kind of how she would deal with a lot of stress. She would just curl up and sleep for hours. So my first gut instinct with everything that was going on in her marriage, that she'd become overwhelmed, fallen asleep on the Sunday night, slept through the dinner she was supposed to go to. And then when she woke up the next day and realized she'd missed it, she was embarrassed and didn't want to answer the phone. So my first thing to do was I called her and said, you know, hey, just want to make sure you're okay. You don't need to let me know what's going on. I know you have a lot of stuff happening, but just let me know that you're okay and if you need anything. And then I called and texted Josh to find out, like, have you seen her? Is she at home? And waited for him to get back to me. Tyler, Shannon's older brother, recalls the first time he heard from Aaron that his sister hadn't been heard from. The Sunday night, Aaron had contacted me and asked if I had heard from her. And, and of course, I hadn't. The very first moment, your mind just immediately goes to, oh, she's probably just waking out. Finally, Josh texted Aaron back later that night. He said he got home and he said that the car was there, but she wasn't. He's like, he didn't know where she was. He'd seen her briefly on the Thursday night, but then he'd gone to bed and, uh, and just hadn't seen her again. And then uh, Lindsay and I came home Monday and we met up with my husband and Brett at the restaurant. And the first thing they said was, something is really wrong. None of us had heard from her. She had not responded to anything, which that was really unusual. This was about seven o'clock in the evening. Lisa and I agreed that we should go to the police. So I asked Erin if she could call the police because she was at home and just get the ball rolling on it. At about one in the morning on Tuesday, December 2nd, Dave got a call from the police wanting to confirm the information Aaron had relayed to them about Shannon being missing. We hoped that she was going to surface, that she'd gone off to Edmonton or somewhere and just sort of gone on a little spree and, and, uh, and was fine. The Friday before Shannon hadn't shown up for the Stage West outing with her brother, there had been a huge snowstorm. Shannon had also previously posted on her Facebook page that the brakes to her car needed fixing. And it was these factors that everyone hoped would explain why her car was still in the driveway. You do not want to believe that the worst has happened. So in your mind, you're spending that whole day going like, oh no, it's probably, she's just over at a friend and she's forgotten or you make up all these excuses for why this can't be possible because you don't want to acknowledge that it's possible. Your first instinct is to say everything is okay. She's fine. She's just off doing something. Maybe she's staying with a friend. 
And then the police are involved, and then it gets serious real fast. On Wednesday, December 3rd, the Calgary police assembled the Medill family and decided the next best course of action was to hold a press conference with the media in full support. The entire family turned out for it, including Shannon's estranged husband, Josh Burgess. Uh, The Calgary Police Service is seeking public assistance to locate a woman who went missing late last week. Shannon Medill, 25, was last seen by a family member at approximately 12.30 a.m. on Thursday, November 27th, 2014, at her residence in the 1900 block of Spiller Road, Southeast. When she didn't arrive for plans with family and friends on Sunday, they became concerned and reported her missing on Monday, December 1st, 2014. Although there are no indications of foul play, it is out of character for her to not be in touch with family and friends. We are all concerned for her welfare. Anyone who may have information about her whereabouts is asked to call police or Crime Stoppers anonymously. Erin, speaking on behalf of the family, also made a public appeal to her sister Shannon in case she happened to be watching. I just want to make sure that she understands that uh, even with all this media attention that she's not in trouble, nobody's going to be mad. We're no- our number one concern is just that you come home. And Shannon, if you see this, please, you're not in trouble. We all love you and we miss you so much. We don't need to know where you are. We just want to know that you're safe. If you see this, please, please contact the police and just let us know that you're okay. We want to know you're okay. Stay tuned for part two when you'll hear about how the Medill family anguished for seven long months before discovering where their daughter was. Five years later, Shannon's family dispels the cliche that time heals all wounds and shares how their lives have been changed forever. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Derek, Amy S., Stephanie H., MJ Pipers 8, Jeanette K., Greta C., Monique O., Corey B., Crystal J., and Laura A. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Anxiety. Do you or someone you know struggle through life with anxiety-related mental disorders? Ever get that feeling that you are one of the few? I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. Take a journey with me as I talk about key points in my past and how they may have led to me being diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder. After which, we will talk about different ways to tone down the anxiety and maybe even beat it together on anxiety. The easiest way to remember the name is by thinking about how one searches for a state of zen in the midst of the anxieties of life. My name is Gerald, and I'm the host of Anxiety. And all crime, no cattle. Hi, true crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. 
We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E madness. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause 